because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Auburn head coach Johnny Harris to the Basketball Podcast. In her first season, Coach Harris helped Auburn double its win total from the previous season and pick up three victories over nationally ranked opponents. The second season was also a step in the right direction for the program as the team finished with a winning record for the first time since 2019 and advanced to the second round of the Women's National Invitational Tournament. A longtime Southeastern Conference assistant and the 2018 WBCA National Assistant Coach of the Year, Harris was named Auburn Women's Basketball Head Coach in April 2021. Harris was an assistant coach at Texas before being named the head coach for Auburn. She has also served as an assistant coach at several other schools, including Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi State. National championships, one. NCAA championship game appearances, three. NCAA lead appearances, six. NCAA Sweet 16 appearances, nine. NCAA appearances, 12. Quite the resume as Coach Harris goes into her third year at Auburn. Coach Harris has vast coaching experience, having won one national championship, appeared in three NCAA championship games, appeared in six NCAA Elite Eights, appeared in nine NCAA Sweet Sixteens, and appeared in 12 NCAA tournaments. Coach Harris, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coach, when I went through your resume, um, and I've been trying to set this up for a while, so I knew, but man, you've done it all in coaching, and uh, now you get a chance to run your own program. Maybe first just talk to us a little bit about that experience as an assistant coach. I'm not sure anyone's ever had a better resume heading into a head coaching job. Well, I have really been blessed to have, you know, coached with some some really, really good coaches, you know, Hall of Famers, Kay Yao, Gary Blair, Vic Schaefer, and I've taken a lot. You know, I coached with Susie Gardner, who's been you know, when she was at Arkansas, but she's really been successful at Mercer. I've coached with, uh, I started out with Tracy Stewart Lang as a GA, and then with Lewis Horton, who was a Hall of Famer, he passed away uh, a year ago, but had the opportunity actually to start coaching on the floor and recruiting with him at the junior college level. So I've been blessed to be around some really amazing people. Were you surprised how long it's taken you to get this head coaching job, or is it the right time? It is the right time. I had opportunities, but and I did. It, it wasn't that I didn't feel like I was ready. It was just the right opportunity at the right time. I loved being an assistant coach. Every coach that I've worked with prepared me to become a head coach, but it was it. It just for me needed to be the right the right situation at the right time. And, and I just felt like Auburn was it. Well, Auburn is, uh, has been it for you. And I watched the rise. I've listened to a few things that you've talked about. I wanted to ask you, as we focus on Auburn here, back-to-back games for the first time in four years in the SEC you won this year. First time since 2017, won three in a row in the SEC. So I'm curious, is it important to celebrate the small accomplishments on the path towards bigger accomplishments? It, it most definitely, you know, and, and we did have 
going into last year, we had bigger plans. We wanted to, we really wanted to have a shot at getting in the NCAA tournament. And I think until uh, my top two scores were hurt and missed nine SEC games, a combined uh, nine SEC games. And even when Honesty got back, she was not, was clearly not the same. But before that, we felt like we would have had a shot at going to the NCAA tournament. And, And to be honest with you, that was our goal. But with those circumstances where the way we ended up, I thought was really good. I thought our, our we had a young team and they competed. They worked, they worked their butts off and I felt like they competed. And there were times when I had four, you know, five freshmen on the floor. Anywhere from three to five, a lot of nights I had freshmen on the floor. And I just thought those kids came in and competed. I love that. I love that uh, you felt like you could do even better. Uh, sometimes the breaks of the game and everything goes with it. You know, uh, on CoachJohnnyHarris.com, uh, I mean, you have the winning edge and uh, a lot of things around motivation and different things like that. And one of the things that you talk about there is marginal gains for continual improvement. And I've got to think that that's a big part of this program as you build it back to where you feel it should be. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it started with building your culture and getting the right Kids and kids that fit your system. I've always been a part of the, the teams that we've had that have went on to play for championships. Most of the times we didn't even have an All-American on our team, but we had kids that were that fit our system, that were tough, hard-nosed, physical and aggressive. You know, that's always been a part of our DNA, starting back with Gary Blair, Vic Schaefer. That's just what you look for. And I, I think that sets the tone for your program. I, I thought, I, I think we're getting to that. I, you've seen glimpses of it, but I think the team that we have now, it, they they really show it more than uh, the more, the, the longer I'm here, the more that they're showing that. Yeah. And if, if coaches, if you want to go watch Auburn women's basketball, the rise episode one, it, it outlines a lot of the things coaches talking about uh, great excitement around the program and uh, all the things that go with it. And now, improving with marginal gains, baby steps, whatever you want to call it, that's that's not uncommon. That goes to a lot of programs, especially when you're building from where Auburn was. But as coaches, is that something that we should explain to our players and help them normalize and understand that? Uh, yeah, and, and they have to understand that it's, it is a process, but it, and that doesn't mean we're, we're settling for less or we're settling for, you know, whatever place. It's just part of the process of building a team, and they, and they do have to understand that. And but I I do feel like if they come in and they give us everything we have, and and you get breaks in order to win championships, a lot of times you have to be lucky as well as skilled and and all of that. So they you just want to keep them going and continue to get better every day. Just just get a little bit better. We talked about when I first got here being 1% better every day you step on the floor. This year, we're talking about doing one more. You need to make 10 free throws, make 11, you know, just doing one more, taking one more step, just just not getting to the line, go go one step ahead, uh, just so they get that uh, mindset of I'm going to do extra, I'm going to go the extra mile. That is a big part of the process. That's a big part of, of every program that I've been a part of. Well, I love that example, a tangible, practical example of something. And I know motivation is big for you and 
having your players show their passion for improvement. So can you give us some other examples, maybe within practice where you help keep them focused and motivated? Are you keeping score in practice? Uh, you know, are you doing things, winners and losers? What are you doing in practice to keep them? Well, most of everything we do, we're either scoring it, we're timing it. And if they don't make it, you know, we start out practicing with consequences, you know, we, it, it even with letting your man catch the ball on defense or getting your face cut, you got to go and run. It started out where we had to convince them, like, look, you got to run. And it was why. And now I have a team now that if they let their man catch the ball, they know, take off. And and you have to make your time when you go. And then you come back and and do it again. Our philosophy is we don't want our man to catch the ball on three-point line or, or within their shooting range. We want them to catch it way out. And that does uh, several different things. It helps you deny. It helps to recover. Like if you have a post player helping you, but you let your man catch it way out, it's harder to make a post pass, post entry pass. It's harder to make one pass away. It helps us get into help side. So we just don't let our man catch catch the ball where they want to catch it. And and that's the other thing. You, You want them to do, you want your opponents to do things that they normally don't want to do. So we practice with consequence. And I think that has helped us a lot. This team right here, they are really focused. I think I have a, um, you know, I signed eight kids, um, but I have seven of them here. The other one will be here the second summer session. But I think I have a lot of kids with chips on their shoulders. I think I have a lot of kids who just wanted to be here. They fell in love with this Auburn spirit and they wanted to be here and they want to help get this program to the next level. The kids that I had to return, they all, they, you know, they had a choice. They they could have left, but they stayed here. They want to help build this program. They want to see us get back to the NCAA tournament, which is where this program should be. So they are, they are preparing like they want it. Love that. And, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but that's a big part of this, isn't it? Moving that consequence from coach-led to player-led in the yeah, sense yeah. that the players will lead it and the players know the value of it. Is that something that's built over your two and now going into your uh, third off season? It is. It, it And it's starting with our players that we have come back. It also starts with Mingo and uh, Taylor and Kiki, kids that came in and they, they well, I'll start with Mingo. She signed with us at Mississippi State, so she knows what it takes. The other day in practice, she let her man catch the ball, but she, you know, we, we continued to play out. So they ended up swinging it to the other side and we had a post player coming down and Mingo stepped in and took the charge. She immediately got up and went to run. And and everybody was really excited about the charge, but she knew she had let her man catch the ball earlier. So she just automatically took off and run. I didn't have to say, hey, Mingo, you got to go. She went on her own. So, and those kids, they are setting the example. They're, they're leading the way with that. That's how you gain trust, trust with your teammates, trust with your coaches. If you got somebody out that that's really not that great guarding the ball and they know you guys, they have some help, somebody that's going to take a charge, they're going to trust that you're going to be there and they're going to, it'll, it'll be easier for them to do what I want them to do. Denial so de- yeah. Denial defense, obviously a tactical philosophy, but a little bit of an outlier still, isn't it? Like most teams are still pack line. So you denying actually gives you a little bit of an advantage that other teams aren't used to playing against or preparing for. Is that something hey, that's a big part of the picture. Denial, 
pressure in the ball. And the heartache with pressuring is that you get beat off the bounce, but you have to have somebody there and help. And you have to have good rotation. And, you know, we work on that every day. We work on taking charges. You know, I asked a lot of them when they first got here, how many have taken charges? And most of them have not. But you know what? We work on it every day. So they're getting more and more comfortable getting into help and being there. And this this team, this program is um, our fans are embracing that style of play. So when somebody take a charge, this is as exciting as someone hitting a three. I just really feel like that is the ident that's gonna be our identity. I know that's gonna be our identity. I think we'll look more like what I want us to look like this year. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be great. So just to give coaches a, a picture, uh pressure the ball, deny one pass away. We're not helping on the drive from one pass away. We're rotating and helping at the rim. And that's where the charges come in. We're fronting the post. Yes. So that's where the charge is coming from. I, I, I don't like our post to step off on ball side. So the post will stay on ball side. But that rotation will come across from the father's man back. And then we'll rotate down. And that player will get the next pass out. And then we'll we'll scramble. And we like I said, we work on Coach Fred do a good job of working them on scramble defense every day. So a lot of that is about communication. It's about trust. It's about talking. It's about having each other's back. So it, that's been really good. Um, so one pass away, we know the consequence. If you let your player catch the ball inside the three-point line, obviously that's a no-no. If you get beat back door, is that someone else's responsibility in terms of the no-no? Yes, and it depends on where. So you have to be far enough off to where you can be up the line, but you have to be close enough to where you're not just easily getting beat like that from the middle of the court. A lot of that starts with pressure on the ball. If you're pressuring the ball, it's hard to make a really easy backdoor pass, just like it's hard to make a lob pass to the post. So our ball pressure is the most important thing. And the ball pressure, are we are we forcing a direction based on scout or are we playing straight up? What is the preferred stance in terms of covering the ball then with ball pressure? We like to force them baseline. And when they pick the ball up, we're all over them. When they're in the middle of the floor, we're toe-to-toe, chin-to-chin, chest-to-chest, but we're close enough to where we're dictating which way they're going. We like to send them left if they're right-handed. We like to send them right if they're left-handed, but not letting them uh, get to the rim. So square stance on stop on top and force baseline on the wing. Perfect. Analytically, what are you finding are the benefits of denial and some of this pressure type defense? Are you finding anything that now stands out? Yeah, I mean, we're getting a lot of steals. I thought last year, I want to say 38%. We held people to field goal percentage overall. And our problem was, is that we didn't have finishers. I think now we're finishing better. You know, I think we had a great postseason and the recruits we brought in. So we're, we'll be able to finish better because if you're stopping people 35 to 38%, then you know, you're going to have the ball 65 to, you know, 63 to 65%. And some of that going to be dead ball, but a lot of that is live ball and you want to be able to score in transition. So we work on a lot on our transition offense out of that. We really want to get, get those stops and go, go finish. And if we don't have anything, you know, we'll set it up and and either we'll either go and go into our dribble drive 
or emotion, or we will stop and run a play. Yeah, fun, fun to see how it all connect. You know, fronting the post, are you butt fronting or are you chest fronting in terms of that? And then primary help responsibilities. One of the challenges in fronting the post clearly is not that initial helper. Usually they're pretty good, but it's covering that weak side skip. So are you covering that with an X out or how are you covering the weak side? So the weak side skip, so we're pressuring the ball. So yeah. that that skip cannot be a direct skip. If it's a direct skip, that's the person on the ball's issue. Are you if, finding more of those attacks to the weak side or off the dribble then? It's either off the dribble or it's a it's a more of a lob than a straight line pass. Yeah, it's not a straight line pass. They have to float it over there, and right. so that gives us time to recover because we we move on the pass. Yeah, we we want to pressure the balls, to, but sometimes they will get it, and that's the rotation down because I still want to be there. I want to get that help over there to stop the ball, and then let them um let them rotate out of it. Uh, chest front or uh, butt front in terms of the low post? We like the butt front because if they do lob it, we're sitting. And then right when the ball get over us, we'll have a chance to jump up and bat it away. That'll be a whole lot better this year because we have uh, a lot more size. A lot more size. I saw that on the, the recruiting roster coming in. So that's great. And then a uh, key part of obviously fronting is not letting it go back to the high low. So denying the high low and pushing that, I mean, I assume that's a because you don't have a low if you don't have a high and even if they catch it high you want them to catch it you know 35 40 feet out rather than catching it where they can just catch it and make that high low pass and you don't have a low if you don't have a high i love that and uh coach saying that where what's your preferred way for your low post to recover back to the inside which is another key part of that when you front the post and the ball gets moved either the top or the weak side what are some preferred ways to get back to the inside I like for them to, so we have to jump to the ball quickly. So it, it, if if we're fronting and covering the post and the ball go high, we got to beat them to the spot. If if the ball is skipped, we got to get off and beat them to that spot and make them come through us to be able to get to the other side to post up for their lob. And then we're already in front, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. You know, in some of this, I mean, one of the challenges then, if you're going to front the post, and obviously in the SEC, the height and the skill in the inside is just tremendous. So teams trying to attack you, are you finding that they're trying to run a lot of ball screens to be able to force mismatches or run on you in transition to create cross matches to be able to attack the post? They do. And so with ball screens, how we handle that is it just kind of depends on on the team that we're playing and the ball handler. But we have trapped. We have opened up and let let the guard slide through. We have hedged hard, and sometimes we'll just show, you know, back off and and, and show and help more on the roll. So it just depends on who we're playing and uh, that personnel. And generally, trying to avoid switching. Then, yes, we're trying to avoid switching unless it's a four and we have a big guard. Mm-hmm. Um, switched out on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. It's it's great to be able to kind of dive deeper into a denial type of system. Are there any situations in terms of scattering report or different types of matchups that you'll take the denial off a specific player or, you know, to not guard someone who can't shoot, for example, or different things like that? No, we. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Coach was shaking her head right away, everyone, so you know. No. It's an all-in thing, and I love that. It's an all-in thing. There were times when we now we have played a zone we have played a matchup zone when i first got here 
um, and even a little bit last year, just because of depth, talent level, being in foul trouble, we may go zone. This year, we may do some zone too, but it's going to be a totally different. It's, it's still going to be very active, trapping. We want to dictate tempo. We want to dictate what the action is going to be. So we're not going to sit back and just hope somebody miss and not guard somebody. We're not going to do that. Yeah. And part of the philosophy is to not let the other team run their offense, right? To take them out of their offense and be able to disrupt. Make them do something that, you know, something else. You know, a lot of people want to reverse the ball and they usually reverse it through the high post or through a guard coming up. And we want to take that away. What are you finding some of the preferred methods of attacking this type of defense? Because again, you've been part of this defense for a while. Is there anything that's particularly effective to be able to attack a denial type defense? So with this type of defense, everyone has to do their job. So if you're not fronting the post and I'm pressuring the ball, it's going to, you know, I don't have to throw a perfect pass for a lob. Or if you're not in help and we're pressuring the ball, it's it's a little bit easier to get beat off the bounce. And, and I really don't want them backing off to keep somebody from beating them off the bounce. I want them up in them. From the time they walk in the gym, we feel like we're going to be in their butt. So that's our philosophy. You know, we're jumping on them from the jump. You can't do that if everybody's not doing their job. If you're not denying one pass away and you're just letting them catch it now, they're going to catch the ball, but we don't want them to catch it on the three-point line because most people in the SEC can make that shot or they'll dribble in or somebody will have to help you. We want them to catch the ball, you know, like I said, 35, 40 feet from the basket. And then we're we're still pressuring. And normally when that happens and you can't make the pass you want to make, then you got to do something different. And you now when you do something different, we'll adjust and attack it a different way. Like normally they're passing and I just say they're passing to a wing and we take that pass away and she have to dribble entry. Now we might come out and jump there where normally we wouldn't jump there. They made that pass. So um, just try to give them different thing. And, and that could be the difference. You know, sometimes we do that out of timeouts. Sometimes we'll know if, if they're catching a the ball at a cert- on a certain spot on the floor or if it's a certain person, we might jump it. And that could just be the difference in one or two possessions that can be a difference in a ball game. It's fun to be disruptive. I can tell. I can hear it in your passion. I love that. And uh, I'm curious with this all-in type of disruption and denial, are, are you the similar philosophy when it comes to inbound defense in terms of trying to disrupt and deny baseline inbound or silent inbound? Yes, absolutely. We, we don't want them to catch the ball in rhythm. We don't want to catch it where they want to catch the ball. We want them to have to do something different, go set a screen or just get the ball in and, and run a play. So, but but we're not going to back off to let that happen. Like, you're going to have to get open to get. Yeah, and how does that happen? Like, if, in inbound defense, in particular baseline inbound, are you switching out sometimes to be able to deny any type of entry? Or how are you doing it being disruptive on inbound? I, I'm not crazy about switching out. Depending on situations and personnel, um, I might have to switch out. But for the most part, I like for our kids to beat them to the spot and ride them out, you know, get out there and be in denial. So they have to throw that ball over their head and they give everybody else a chance to recover. But we definitely don't want, we're not going to give up. uh, We don't want to give up a shot 
and, and you know, I was young last year, but there was times when we got a lot of five seconds counts on inbound plays, but there was also times when we gave up a wide open shot uh, just because we missed, messed up on the switch or whatever. If the more uh, philosophies you have or the more things you give, especially a young team, it, the easier it is for them to mess it up. So we, I was more like, you know, you get tough, you get through that, you beat them to the spot, so let them get the ball in and let's play. Hey, Coach, brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute, sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you really know which plays, sets, and actions are working for your team? On offense, how valuable are paint touches and post entries? On defense, do you get more stops playing man or zone? Like high-level college and pro teams, you can use an analytics system like Hoopsalytics to get data-driven answers to help guide your in-game strategy and practice emphasis. With Hoopsalytics, you can track any action or set and see the resulting points per possession. Plus the video link stats, you can view your successes and fails and see if it's a play design or execution issue. And you can easily build organized film sessions from these video clips. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com slash ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. Love it. I'm just wondering, I mean, uh, having been uh, an incredible assistant coach for so long at different levels with so many different coaches, I'm wondering, what did you learn from that experience that helped you manage your current staff in the best way possible? I'm imagining some things that you liked and didn't like as an assistant. Now you get a chance to manage your own staff. So can you share some of those things? Yeah. So I will tell you that being around Vic Schaefer, Coach Blair, Coach Yao, you know, all the coaches that I worked for, one of the common things was was to be prepared. And especially Coach Blair. Coach Blair always wanted you to be prepared. He gave everybody responsibilities. You know, I had inbound plays when I went there. And I would I was I was always prepared with the inbound play when he needed. Now sometimes he would ask me for a play on the bench. Sometimes he would not, but I would totally be prepared. And I remember like I, I want to say it was my second year there, Coach Blair. There's a lot of times when he would trust you with it. There's a lot of times when he would he he wanted to call a play himself. Um, but we were in the NCAA tournament my second year there. And and what I did was I studied the offense. I, I knew who could set a good screen, who could not set a good screen. I knew who could get through a screen on the defense, who to set a screen on, and all of that. So we're in the second round of the tournament. We're playing against Gonzaga, I want to say. We had to score. And I told Coach Blair, I said, Coach Blair, I had he hadn't let me call a play all game. But I said, Coach Blair, I have a play that will work. I'll get you a wide open shot. He was, And he looked at me. He was like, nah, I got it. And so one of the uh, other assistant coach, Coach Bond, she said, I know you got to play. She said, go back in there and you look him in the eye and say, coach, I got this. And so I went back in the huddle. He's talking. I said, coach, I got it. Let me have it. And so he said, OK, but you better score. <laughs> and so we got a wide open backdoor layup uh, from that team. But that was because I was prepared. I knew who was on the floor. I knew who could who I could pick on. I knew who I could beat back door. 
And um, I set the play up and, and we scored. And from that day on, I think his tr- level of trust was more and more. Now, he he gave me that time on the floor to put plays in. But when it came to games, it took him a while to to really trust me with with calling those plays. But after that, in our national championship game, the play that we, we were up one, we had an inbound play with just a few seconds. I called that play. We ended up getting a three. But that built. And that came from being prepared. That's great so, advice. Yeah, great advice. And but the other thing that you got is you got reps, right? He gave you reps in practice to be able to do that. And was that common for a lot of the coaches you worked with that they gave you reps in practice to be able to develop? Well, that started with that started with Coach Blair. Yeah, uh, started with Coach Blair, and then and then you know I did the same thing with Vic. the The thing with Coach Blair is he wanted me to recruit. But I made it clear that I wanted more. And so and that started with Vic Schaefer, Kelly Bond, me going in the office with them because they had been with them forever. And so me going in the office with them, learning how to scout the way he wanted it, uh, the way Vic wanted it. And and I did that that stuff on my own and prepared scouting reports. So whenever there there was and i went from there to to now they're trusting me with scouts so now i'm scouting that that was i i love scouting because you know as an assistant you get to see patterns of coaches you you're scouting against some amazing coaches and you get to see how they're putting together their plays you know you can see patterns yeah, you just learn so much uh, from scouting. That was, I think, that was one of the things that helped me the most is being able to scout. Going in there with Vic Schaefer and him, me doing mock-up scouting reports, and him writing all through it. Going from that to him using my scouting reports. So, like I said, that was just big, but that was something that I I wanted to do more than just recruit. So I I put myself in that position. Well, I just I think the most important thing of that story is that you advocated for yourself. So talk to us about that. And because that's not an easy thing for an assistant coach. I know that in in a lot of the roles, but one, creating that environment as a head coach for your assistant to feel comfortable to advocate for themselves. And two, you having the belief and confidence to do that. So can you offer your best advice to uh, those? Yeah, so with me, it, and it's, it could be one or two ways. So with me, I hadn't been with them. I hadn't been in that system. When I went to AM, uh, Coach Blair had three seniors. Or well, he had four seniors, but three starters. And then he had three juniors that, you know, had been in the program, that had been playing a lot of minutes, and they pretty much knew his system inside and out. And then he had Kelly and Vic, who were with him at Arkansas and had been with him four or five years there before I got there. So it was, how do I find my voice? So I'm I'm standing on the sideline and I, I just don't want to mess anything up because they already knew. But that was a way, you know, I had to look around and see how I could get my voice through. And, and that was a way that if you're doing scouts, they got to listen to you. You know, the coaches have to listen to you because, you know, the scouting reports, the players are going to come to you. So that was a way that I could get my voice out. I just, you know, I wanted to, to have an impact, but I I wanted to be effective. I didn't just want to be out there just saying something just to say it. 
I wanted to have an impact. So I had to figure out how do I find my voice? What is it that this team needs? Other than players, you know, we're always successful with bringing in really good players there, but how how can I help on the court? And so that was that was one of the ways that studying those inbound plays, making sure that I was ready when coach needed a play. I had to play for him. It, it, it didn't matter the situation. The, and that was a way that I could get my voice out there. I love it. And uh, do you have any advice to current assistants? I know like it's a it's a cliche that's true. I get it. Do your best job as the assistant for the head coach and the opportunity will come. But they should also still be preparing to be a head coach. So talk to us about the best advice in terms of balancing those two things because you've been through it. And so the way that I prepare myself, first of all, I don't think, you know, I never wanted to give my boss a reason to worry that I'm just out there job hunting. And I was I was never doing that. And I know there are a lot of people there and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I wanted to make sure he knew I was all in with what I was doing. I really believe because of that, because I was always supportive. You know, there were sometimes he had to speak and I would ask, uh, Vic, can I go speak to this group? There were a lot of times I would go out and speak and it would be the head football coach, the head men basketball coach, and then me speaking to a bunch of boosters or a bunch of donors or whoever. That's preparing myself. But that's also, Vic, I know you want to go play golf. You go play golf and let me do that. So that's also making sure that he knew that I could handle whether it was practice or whether it was talking to players that, you know, was was having issues or handling parents. I, I tried to always know what he wanted and what he needed. And uh, sometimes even if he if he didn't want it, but if I could give him a couple of days to where he could go and relax or go hunting or go fishing or whatever he wanted to do, put myself in a position to where he trusted me to take care of the team while he was out doing that. And he didn't have to worry. Coach, he used to always say that when you wake up in the morning, I want uh, recruiting to be the first thing on your mind. And it was for, for a lot of years. But then once we got, once we passed the recruiting, recruiting coordinating position on to the next coach, my, the first thing I thought about is how, what could I do to help coach Schaefer today? to help take something off his plate. Because as a head coach, you have so much. And I don't think people really understand how much you have. What can you do to take some of that off of uh, of, of your coach? What do he know that you're going to bring or she know that you're going to bring to the table that'll take something that they're comfortable giving you, turning over to you that you can do to help? And, and I would say put yourself in that position. It's tremendous advice. So just diving a little deeper, is that something that you would suggest an assistant go to the head coach and say, listen, I know these things are on your plate. I can handle these things and go proactively with actually things that you can do. Or is it to just offer in general and say, hey, listen, I'm here for you if you want me to do something more. Yeah, I and I think it it could be either way. It depend it depends on your boss. Like some bosses want to handle everything themselves. I think when you're in that situation, you just gotta show them that you can do it. You you have to show them that you can be trusted doing this, that, or the other without being overbearing. 
but but then there's some that you you know you can go to and say hey coach I we were in a situation where we had some players that wanted to talk because they didn't they didn't like the offense we were running or something like that and coach Schaefer said well you know I went and talked to him I said hey you got some players that want to talk to you and he said well what do you suggest how you how you want me to handle it I said I want you to go play golf and let me handle it I promise you I got it and and he did and I handled it they ended up at practice and we went on to take that team to the elite eight but these were the top three players on the team that were not happy with what he was doing but it was my job to make sure hey this this man you're talking about somebody that's a a hall of famer he's been he's in all of the he's been coach of the year and he's been coach of the year like you questioning him so I just had to point out to you, you know, your coach just got fired. Yours just got fired. Yours just got fired. It could be because you're questioning what they're doing. Why not trust somebody? So I, I he allowed me to go in and take care of that. He didn't have to worry about it. I tried to make sure that these players were ready to practice, that he didn't have to deal with attitudes or issues off the courts or grades or anything like that. So that that was the thing that I woke up in the morning and made sure was taken care of where he had to cope. He had to take care of getting a game plan together or you know, managing the budget and all that other stuff that head coach do that assistant coach have no idea. But the things that I could take off of them, I, I tried to do that. And you know now as a head coach, I mean, there's nothing better than having an assistant that will handle things and certainly handle things on behalf of you in a way that supports what you're trying to do. And that just that voice to be able to have it come not from the head coach, because they hear from the head coach so much, don't they? To be able to hear it from an assistant and say, actually, no, you should be doing this. Yes. Yes. For me, I hired a former player, but she's a ten, she had been coaching for 10 years, but a former player from A&M, two former players from, from Mississippi State. So they knew, and and I'm, and these were, I didn't just hire them because they were my former players, but because they're good at what they do. They're all good at different things, but they're a lot of the same things. But the, the main thing is we share a philosophy. So when you're taking on a new program, it's not you, it wasn't me having to teach my assistant coaches and my players. It, it was players who had been through it, who knew, who were tough who were physical, who were aggressive, and they knew what that looked like. So now they can model those behaviors. You know, we always want our kids to do extra, to do a little bit more, to be prepared and all of that. Well, now they can see what that looked like in the coaches that are hired. And so because they model that behavior. And so that's one thing I don't have to worry about. I don't have to worry about walking in my office and my coach is not being prepared or they're on a different place. With that being said, they don't agree with, we don't agree on everything, but the good thing about it is that we can come in here and talk. They may give me a suggestion. I may go with that suggestion or I may have a totally different decision. But when we walk out of this office, we're all on the same page. That has been really amazing, this staff. Just, I mean, there's so many insights here. Thank you, Coach. And, uh, you know, thinking about business, I mean, having a niche, having some type of specialty is usually pretty important because it gets you to the right audience and that specific audience. I'm wondering as an assistant coach, is there is there a challenge and a benefit to having a niche, say someone labeling you as a defensive coach or someone labeling you as a recruiter 
as in your case, like so much of your reputation seems to be built on recruiting, but we know you're so much more than that through that process. So I'm wondering, is that both a positive and a negative or how do you approach that type of philosophy? I think it's a positive, but I also think that putting your assistance in different situations and I try to, as Vic did, I try to always give my my coaches credit for making in-game adjustments or telling me something that you know, I need to know and, and we make an adjustment to help us in whatever situation. I give all of them time on both ends of the court. So they get time on the offensive end and they get time on the defensive end because just like you're you're coaching your players, you're also coaching your assistant coaches. You're also developing them. You want them to develop. You want them to eventually have their own program. That's why you get into it. So I think it's really important to make sure that they have that time, both on the offensive end and defensive end, for, for a couple of different reasons. It does develop them, but when I'm gone, if I have to just step away to do something, now they're prepared. They know exactly what you want and the players are going to trust them. The players aren't going to look at them like, okay, you're good on defense, but how are you going to tell me what to do on the offensive end? So I, I make sure like when we break down sometimes and I'll have one team down here and another team down there, I'll have assistant coaches coaching them. Even though I'm watching and coaching the whole thing, I'll still have them coaching them and building that level of trust. Great. It strikes me as the same thing as what you do with players to a certain extent, that you notice that they're doing something better than they were before, and that noticing it helps and helps keep them motivated to keep going. And it's the same thing for your assistants, right? When you give them public, uh, public acceptance or public uh, support or whatever that may be, that that's a big part of the process. Any other challenges that you experienced as an assistant that uh, you found a solution to as a head coach for them? It wasn't really a challenge for me, but I, I did learn that one of the most important things is getting players, especially when you're out recruiting, is getting players that you're that you're about. You, you have to know who you who you work for, and it's getting players that 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 fit them that fit their system, players that they don't have to fight with to get to do what they want. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 really important to go out and get what your boss wants. Like you might see a player and you think, okay, this is the one, but may not be a good fit for your boss. It's more important to get that fit than it is even, uh, it could be a highly higher ranked kid, but if they don't fit, they don't fit. You get somebody that your coach can coach, um, that has that uh, a like mentality and personality. So either it's laid back or it's, it's I'm going to get after it, doing extra. It's hard. You have to know who you're working for and, and what helps them out on the court. And that's what you have to make happen. Is recruiting harder nowadays with all the access to information or easier with all the access to information? It's always pretty much been been the same with the information. The thing that that's making it difficult is not knowing what your roster is going to be the next year because of NIL, because of the the first year, the next year transfer. So you may think, um, like right now, I have two committed in the twenty four class, and I only I only have one scholarship left. But we're recruiting three or four more kids because. 
you never know what your roster is going to look like. And it doesn't mean it could be a kid that's happy, that's playing a lot. There's just no rhyme or reason for a kid transferring now. So you are prepared that they're going to transfer almost, right? You have to be prepared. And so, you know, even though we have two commitments in that 24 classes and we're looking for 25s, but we're still recruiting 24s because you never know. It's a fascinating time, I know, for college coaches. And, uh, you know, finding your new system and new way of handling it is obviously a big priority. Curious about the layers of an evaluation when it comes to recruiting. You've worked with different coaches and different staffs and now for yourself. Is it a question? I mean, you have analytics now, obviously you have video, you have in-person. How many different coaches need to see a player in order for you to say offer them or to recruit them officially? Is there layers of uh, validation or is it just you and you making the final decision? I'd make the final decision, but because I have players that have played for me and know what I look for, I trust that. I, and then my other recruiting coaches, Fred Williams, who coached in the WNBA, he know my philosophy and, and we share. We have a lot of the same philosophy. So if they tell me that there's a, a player out there, they haven't been wrong. If they tell me there's a player out there that I need to offer, yeah, I'll, even if I haven't seen them yet. And normally I have seen them on film. I may not have seen them in person. But if they see them before and they feel like, hey, you need to go ahead and offer them and then I'm going to go see them, I'll, I trust them with that. Talk to me. I mean, it was noticeable when I researched for this podcast, uh, CoachJohnnyHarris.com, uh, obviously the rise, that episode, um, a few other things. Like You've done a really conscientious and, and great job of branding yourself and your program. Can you talk about the importance of that and then maybe what some next steps in that process are? Well, I think coming here because the program was you know, a bit in shambles and they didn't win, hadn't won a lot in the last couple of years. I think it was really important for people to know who I am, you know, being a first year head coach. So I think that's why our I had Bob Starkey and a lot of this was, you know, he, he's very experienced. And his first thing was, we got to put you out. First, we got to make sure people know who you are, what your philosophy is, how you want to build this team. And so we started out talking about that. Uh, we knew we wanted our team to be that tough. And I keep saying the same words because that's who we are. Tough. That's who we're leading to be. We've been building up to being that tough, physical, hard-nosed, aggressive team. I remember being with Vic Schaefer and he used to always use those words. And if I'm recruiting a kid that didn't look like that tough, hard-nosed, physical, aggressive. Uh, and sometimes, you know, Vic used to always say, well, that has nothing to do with your jump shot. And it doesn't, but it does have something to do with your ability to score. Like you still have to be tough. You have to be physical to be able to score in the SEC so just making sure people understand exactly what that means, exactly what we're looking for, exactly what I mean when I tell our students that we want to jump on people from the time they walk in the door. So I need a student section to help me with that. It's it's just, I think we're building to that. Our, our crowds have gotten bigger. They're getting louder. They're understanding what our philosophy is and what's important and, um, and when to go crazy. And just things like that, that branding, that uh, 
you know, making sure they know what to expect and uh, what we're looking for and what we need from them. Yeah, that that was uh, really important, especially when you're starting over, when you're building, you know, from ground up. Coach, you're building and you're getting to that point. And I know your expectations are high. So going into your third year, this has got to be a lot of fun for you as you see a lot of this work potentially going to pay off. Oh, yeah, it is. And I'm seeing things like I'm walking in this morning and I see players in the gym getting up shots and just the the buy-in from players, from, from players that I initially inherited that was here. Those guys have bought in. They're, they're doing things that we've been telling them, but, you know, sometimes they have to see that it works. But I, I just think this team this year, we have a total buy-in. We haven't had kids missing class. We haven't had kids not doing what they're supposed to do. And I always tell our kids, if you're not going to be disciplined off the court, there's no way you can be disciplined on the court. I have a lot of kids that are disciplined, that are doing the right things. And and that's both on and off the court. I don't have to coach effort. I don't have to coach hard. I don't have to coach attitude. I'm being able to coach basketball. So that is something that is really welcomed in my third year. Well, Coach, can't thank you enough for sharing the game with us. It's going to be exciting to watch your program uh, through the next few years, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Get the best instructional coaching with ImmersionVideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then ImmersionVideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Cassio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more. Try ImmersionVideos.com today and become an even better coach. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballmergent.com slash newsletter.